Our scripture reading today comes from Galatians chapter 2, verse 11 through 14. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? This is the word of the Lord. Uh, well, good morning, everybody. Good to see you. My name is uh, Reed Kappel. I serve as the campus pastor here. And, and as Sarah mentioned, if you're new, we're glad you're here. We'd love to meet you and greet you at our welcome table out in the lobby. Uh, and, f- and for you kiddos, if you're in here, we're glad you're here as well. And maybe you notice we have not one but two Kid Connects, which is really cool. Uh, and so there's one for ages 3 to 6, one for ages 8 to 12. So if you fill this out, bring it to the welcome table out in the lobby, you get candy. It's a pretty sweet deal. And so we encourage you to engage in that. So you can follow along in the sermon with that. But, um, but before we kind of jump in to, to the text this morning, I'd love just to, to pray for our time together. So would you join me as we pray? Father in heaven, we pause in this moment to ask for your spirit to bless the teaching of your word. Lord, I recognize my own inadequacy, and I I want us to be a people who hear from you and who are formed and shaped by your word. So Lord, may you bless this time, and may you draw us closer to you, and may we leave this place living our lives, reflecting more of the image of Christ, the one who gave his life for us. It's in his name and for his glory that we pray. Amen. Uh, so, uh, recently, I was discussing with some of my friends the very, the very grown-up topic of who would win in a fight. Uh, th- th- this is something like, you know, I did as a kid, and I still have not grown out of this conversation. And my group of friends, there were about eight of us, we were, we were debating about who would win in a fight amongst our group of friends. And guess who was not at the top of the list? Uh, I was actually, I was not the bottom, I was second to last. And the only reason I was voted second to last is because my friends concluded that I would be the one in our group who would fight dirty, which is true, and I would probably be the one who would become unhinged in a situation like that, which is probably also true. I'm not quite sure. But, uh, and, and, and again, it's, it's silly, but we, we, we spent a good hour debating this. And, and I'm, I'm very acutely aware of the fact that I'm not an intimidating person. I don't have this physical constitution that would cause anyone to be afraid of me. Uh, and so I realized that I am a little bit more susceptible to certain physical threats. And, and I think about that from time to time, and I'm sure you do as well. You think about the various threats that are posed against you and the safety of yourself and your loved ones. Uh, and oftentimes we tend to think, when we consider these threats that stand against us, we tend to think that the majority of the threats to our safety are external, that they are foreign, they are unknown to us. When in reality, the majority of the real threats that, that face us typically come from sources that are known to us. And and according to the Bureau of Justice Statistics, which is hard to say, 21 to 27% of violent crimes are committed by strangers, while 73 to 79% of violent crimes are committed by someone known to the victim. Which is to say that the majority of these kinds of threats are not external, but they are internal. They come from within our relationships, our communities. And and the reason I share this is because there's a sense in which when we think about the gospel message and and the integrity of the church of Jesus Christ, as we consider the threats that stand against the church and against the gospel, 
We may, if, we, if you identify as a Christian, you may think that the majority of those threats are external and that they are not internal. We may conclude that the greatest threat to the church and the message of the gospel is something like persecution or, or the increase uh, of, uh, of world religions or it is the, the pervasiveness of secularism or it is the, the, the diminishment of, of religious liberties. But I believe that the greatest threat to the gospel is not external, but it is internal. That the greatest wound that can be brought upon the church is a self-inflicted one caused by hypocrisy. A hypocrisy that is, that is displayed by myself included, by people who believe in the gospel, who proclaim the gospel, who trust the gospel, and yet in some ways find themselves walking out of step with the gospel. And it's this very issue of hypocrisy that the Apostle Paul addresses in Galatians chapter 2. Now, if you were with us last week, we started this series in the book of Galatians, uh, and, and our series is called No Other. And in this series, what we're doing is exploring the beauty and the depth and the majesty of the message of the gospel. And we're kind of turning the diamond, so to speak, of this gospel message and looking at the various facets of it and what it means and how it speaks to our lives today. And last week, we looked at how the gospel is not advice to be given, but rather it is a message to be received. It is news to be understood. And we shared this very, very concise definition of the gospel that I want to repeat for us again, just so we have, we're all kind of on the same page. When we talk about the gospel, the gospel is the good news of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, which if you trust him above all others saves you from sin, and gives you new life. And so this gospel, which we will continue to explore throughout Galatians, this message, it has the power to forgive us of our sins. It has the ability to, to strip us of our tendencies to place our own interests above the interests of others. It, it, it deconstructs these dividing walls that we create in our communities and our cultures. And it also reestablishes an equal worth and value in all people. And this message, whether you believe it or not, whether you're a Christian or not, it's one of these messages that you want it to be true. Even if you can't believe in its veracity or the historicity of Scripture, when you hear this message of being forgiven, of being reconciled, a message that brings about peace and unity, it's a message you want to be true. And it's a message, if it is true, you would want to protect it from any threat that would compromise its impact in the world or its integrity in and of itself. And that is exactly what the Apostle Paul does in Galatians chapter 2, that he recognizes a threat against the gospel and he addresses it head on. And so if you have your Bibles, I want you to turn to Galatians 2 and we're going to be looking at verses 11 through, 14, 11 through 16. And, and just to kind of give some context, kind of where, where Paul's coming from here in this confrontation that he has with Cephas, who is Peter, the Apostle Peter. Uh, the, the Christian church, he refers to the city of Antioch. And in the city of Antioch, the Christian church was growing like crazy, which in and of itself was remarkable. But when you consider the fact that the church was comprised of both Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians who were coming together, worshiping together, sharing life together, sharing food together, it was uniquely remarkable. Because Jews and Gentiles did not play very well on the playground. There was not a lot of unity together. Because the, so it was just remarkable to see this kind of new community experiencing this new kind of life, which truly was unprecedented. 
In fact, it was, it was actually in Antioch where the term Christian came about because there was, there was a need of a new label to describe this community because it was no longer Jewish and it was no longer Gentile. What do we call these people who didn't really hang out well together and now are worshiping Jesus as one community? The term Christian came about because of that very issue. And this kind of unity in diversity was just radical. I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of unfounded, so much so that it led the Apostle Peter to go to Antioch to kind of see what's going on, to understand and explore this radical unity in diversity. And it was very unheard of. I mean, like to kind of put it into kind of categories, it would be like hearing about the NRA and PETA hosting like a picnic together and a bocce ball tournament. Like that, like that doesn't happen in our world. Those two groups don't fit together. And so Peter hears of these Jews and Gentiles worshiping Jesus, and he goes to explore it. And, and as Peter goes to Antioch, he begins to spend time with the Gentiles, and he, he's sharing life with them and sharing food with them, which is no small thing. Because what Peter's saying in this moment, what he's living, what he's telling with his life, is that the truth of Jesus Christ trumps all cultural, racial, and ethnic categories to the point that it's Jesus that unites us together which is this beautiful thing, but then things start to fall apart as we see this threat, the origin of this threat to the gospel that Paul addresses. So Peter, Peter is fully living into this, this identity as, as, a, as a new creation in Jesus. And he is, he is embracing the freedom that is afforded to him in the gospel that allows him to live like a Gentile, which is what Paul says. You're, you're, you're living like a Gentile. You're in this community. It's as if you are one and the same with them. But then the cool kids come down from, from Jerusalem. These Jewish Christians that we, that we think are Christians come down, and Peter starts to sing a different tune. We notice in verses 11 where Paul says, But when Cephas, who is Peter, when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face. Because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, which was in Jerusalem, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. Now, first of all, can you blame Peter for being afraid of something called the circumcision party? That's like, like, it's not a party I want to be invited to. Like, I'm throwing a party this week, and what kind of party? Doesn't matter. Uh, but seriously, like, what, what's going on in the situation, it's really not that dissimilar from, like, classic middle school, middle school lunchroom behavior. You, you have Peter, who's friends with the cool kids, but also friends with the, the not-so-cool kids. And so Peter's hanging out with the not-so-cool kids at lunch. You know, he's, he's eating his pulled pork sandwich, lunchable, you know, with the Gentiles. He's hanging out with them. But then all of a sudden, the cool kids come, the Jewish Christians, and Peter gets up from the table and leaves because he doesn't want his cool friends to see him hanging out with the not-so-cool kids. Now, what's happening in this situation, Peter, I don't think Peter is changing his theology. I don't think Peter is adopting a different gospel. But what he is doing is that he has allowed himself to return to a behavior that reclassified people based on these secondary identity markers. That he went back to allowing culture and ethnicity to determine one's worth and value and to determine his willingness to spend time with them. And in this moment, as Peter who was living like a Gentile, embracing this community, all of a sudden these cool kids come down from Jerusalem 
and Peter doesn't want to be seen with the Gentiles. It is this behavior where we see the origin of the threat to the gospel message that Paul will not allow to be unchallenged. That Paul, a fellow apostle, Paul sees this threat to the gospel as being so severe that he's willing to publicly condemn a fellow apostle because of his behavior. In this threat, what we see is Peter's blatant hypocrisy in the way in which he, in his behavior, what Peter is doing is he is, he is turning potential brothers and sisters into others. In this moment, what Peter is doing is he is, he is taking these Gentiles who, some of them may have been Christians, some of them may, probably were not, but Peter was allowing his, his fear of his other Jewish friends to take these potential sisters and brothers and turn them back into others. Now again, this doesn't mean that Peter is, is acting, uh, he's not embracing a different gospel. It doesn't even mean that Peter's necessarily a bigot or a racist or a xenophobe, you know, someone who's afraid of other cultures or people from other countries. But what it does mean is that Peter is pivoting, he is pivoting in his behavior toward, back towards this place where he is allowing to create this category of the other. And that is where the origin of this threat is being birthed. And, and when I use this word other, I think it's important for us to know what, what we're talking about. When I say other, I mean, obviously, there are people who are different than us. We all recognize that. But there is this categorization, this creation of the other that is very dangerous and poses a threat to the gospel. And so I think it's important for us to know what do we mean when we talk about the other. And I would define the other as this. The other is any person or people group that you have limited relational connection with, due to current or previous systems, as well as personal judgments and assumptions based on characteristics that you deem different from yourself. I know that's a mouthful, but it's any person or people group that you have limited relational connection with due to current or previous systems, as well as personal judgments and assumptions based on characteristics that you deem different from yourself. Now, in, in this definition, I'm this is, not, this is not about like overt racism or bigotry uh, or, or extreme prejudice. It's, it's simply this categorization of allowing someone who is different from you to be treated in a different way. And this categorization of the other stood as a threat against the gospel then, and it continues to stand as a threat against the gospel today. And so with that in mind, as we think about, I mean, Paul, who is willing to confront Peter in his hypocrisy, in his categorization of the other, we should pause and ask ourselves, how do we understand the category of other in our lives today? Who is the other in our lives? How do we know if and when we have created this category? How do we know we have treated someone as an other? And it should not come as a shock that in our culture we find a great deal of division. I mean, all across the board, we see that our culture has a serious problem of treating people who are different than us in ways that are unhealthy, unhelpful, and in some ways harmful and toxic. I mean, we see it in, in, in the large historical narrative of, of our nation, that we see the racial divide even now that is rooted in the historic system of, of slavery, 
Uh, we also see it in, in, in the institution of, of Jim Crow laws. We see it in, in the unjust housing uh, practices of redlining. If you want to learn more about that, you can, you can Google it. But, but we see that there is this division within our nation historically. We see it today in, in the stigma placed on Muslim people groups and how they, they have no place in this country. We see it in the demonization of people who have a different political persuasion than us. We see it in the fear and contempt we have for immigrants who shouldn't be within our borders. We see it in the way in which we estrange and mock people who identify with the LGBTQ community. We see it even amongst Christians who treat other Christians as others just because they're a part of a different theological tribe or denomination. We all have this tendency to create divisions and categorize people as other. I mean, from, from gender to income to, to, our, to KUK State, Pepsi-Cola, like, like the, uh, the list is endless and, and the possibilities are endless for the ways in which we create division in our culture. And you can call it you can call it bigotry, you can call it racism, you can call it xenophobia, homophobia, identity politics, whatever. But all of it is rooted in a divisive and pernicious and, and toxic classification of the other. And we all do this. We all have someone or some people group that is profoundly other to us. We all have someone that we uniquely deem as other. And when we do this, we find it easy to justify either our indifference towards them at best or our indecency towards them at worst. When someone is other, it is easy to get into the slippery slope of treating them with indifference at best or indecency at worst. And this categorization of the other, I think, I, think, I mean, we could list a whole different a slew of reasons, but I think there are two things that happen when we create the other, two factors that cause this creation of the categorization of the other. And the first is that we tend to fear what we don't know and understand. We tend to fear what we don't know and understand, and we tend to make ourselves the standard of normalcy. We tend to be the standard of normalcy so that anything that is different than me is not just different, but it is weird. It is strange. It is foreign. It is other. And we do this individually and collectively. As, as one of my friends recently kind of helped me see is that you can't create the other without first creating the we. And when you have a we, it's so easy to look at others and see their differences and not just see differences, but to see categories and characteristics that justify, again, either indifference on one side or indecency on the other. The creation of the other is a slippery slope that starts with a seemingly innocent and neutral claim that people are just different. And that's true. I'm not trying to claim that we are all exactly the same person. There are differences among us. The problem comes when we allow our differences with others to determine our preferences for others. That is the problem. When we allow the differences we see in others to create our preference for others. Or as Tim Keller says, he says it so well, he says, one of the most common self-justifying systems is to convince ourselves of the superiority of our own race or ethnicity. This happens when we attach moral significance to things that are only matters of cultural preference, such as the difference of a time-centric culture in the Anglo-European culture versus an event-centric, which is typically found in South American culture. 
The gospel radically undermines all of this. And it is this, this otherness mindset that creates a we and them mentality that leads to an otherness behavior that, according to Paul, has no room and no place in the gospel, which is exactly where Paul goes next as he addresses and shows us the real danger of this threat. So the origin of the threat is the categorization of the other, but the danger of the threat is far greater. So Peter's behavior, it was hypocritical, and it was threatening. It was, it was evidenced as a threat to the truth of the gospel. And Paul, again, was willing to confront Peter, a fellow apostle. But notice Paul's words in his confrontation of Peter. He doesn't say, hey, Peter, your behavior is unkind. Hey, Peter, your behavior is, is violating certain social, cultural norms. No, he doesn't say that. He says something even more profound. Verse 14, Paul's speaking here, but when I saw that their conduct, because it wasn't just Peter, when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews. Now, according to Paul, Peter's behavior is not just a violation of a social issue. This is not just a cultural reality. Paul is clear that Peter's behavior of categorizing people as other and treating them differently and perpetuating this divide is a gospel issue. It is not just a social issue. Peter's actions of treating the Gentiles as other, which, which resulted in this, this cultural and ethnic split, was a behavior that, according to Paul, was not in step with the truth of the gospel. Now, that sounds cool and motivating and, and inspiring, but what does that mean? Like, how do we connect the dots here? How, do, how does the message of, of a homeless Jewish carpenter who died on a Roman cross 2,000 years ago have anything to do with the way in which we treat and think about people who are different than us today. The reason why the categorization of the other, the reason why that behavior is not in step with the gospel is because it is an attempt to undermine the power of the gospel that justifies us and forgives us exclusively on the basis of Christ alone. That to treat someone else in a different way simply because of a secondary identity marker of their culture, of their ethnicity, of their religious preference, to allow that to be something that categorizes them as other and places you above them is not just unkind, is not just unjust, it is an attack on the central truth of the gospel that says there is nothing about your cultural identity, your ethnicity, that compels God to love you any more or any less. Which is why exactly Paul, after he rebukes Peter, after he records, records this account of Peter, Paul goes right to the central doctrine of the gospel, which is the doctrine of justification. And in verse 16, what does Paul says? The reason why this behavior is out of step with the gospel is because we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. You see, the, the heart of the gospel message, which, which we will unpack in more detail next week, the heart of the gospel is the work of God declaring you and me his own 
as he declares us righteous and forgiven on the basis of grace alone through faith alone in the completed work of Christ alone. When that is the only thing that determines our worth and value in God's eyes, it is out of step with the gospel to allow any secondary identity marker to allow us to, to, be, to create some division between individuals and people groups. Since there is nothing about our culture or our ethnic identity that compels God to love us and justify us, these identity markers cannot be used to classify anyone as being beneath or above anyone else. Or to, or to put it in a more cutesy way that you could stitch on a pillow. At the foot of the cross of Jesus, we all stand on level ground. And so when we allow any kind of categorization to place someone above or beneath anyone else, we are showing that we are living out of step with the gospel the gospel that says we are forgiven and justified on the work of Christ alone. The gospel is not just good news that saves us and motivates us. It is absolutely that. But it is also a good news that transforms us and shapes the way that we view ourselves and the way in which we now view our neighbors. Since the gospel can transform anyone, there are no longer others, but only potential sisters and brothers. That is the message of the gospel, that because of the grand leveler of the cross, that no one is further away from Jesus than anyone else, the gospel declares to us that there are no others but only potential sisters and brothers. But the gospel also takes it even a step further. It is, it is not enough. You see, Peter's behavior was out of step with the gospel, not just because not just because he made the Gentiles others, but because he allowed his categorization of other to separate himself from them. And what this means is that the gospel does not simply say, we are now allowed to be together. We have permission to be together as a diverse people group and community. But rather, the gospel shouts to us, we ought to be together. It's not enough to simply say, we have permission to be together, but we have the prerogative as the body of Christ to be together, which is why theologian Jarvis Williams in his phenomenal book, One New Man, says that, specifically in, in terms to the issue of racial reconciliation, he says that racial reconciliation is not an implication of the cross. It is the work of the cross, which means then if we understand that the gospel does not simply tell us we have permission to be together, but that we ought to be together, that means that the active pursuit of division and the passive indifference towards division is out of step with the gospel. Or to put it even more pointedly, homogenized and separated communities are not in step with the gospel because they do not portray the fullness of the gospel message. They do not portray what, what Jesus has been about from the beginning, what God's plan of redemption has been about from the beginning. They, they, they do not display what Paul even says later in Galatians 3. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. It is not enough for us to say we stand opposed to segregation and division. The gospel compels us also to say that we must work towards reconciliation and unity, and that to either actively pursue or passively perpetuate 
a segregated and racialized church is not only out of step with the gospel, it jeopardizes the plausibility of the gospel. It jeopardizes the believability within our watching world and our community that the gospel can actually transform individuals and peoples and communities. Why would anyone want to believe in a gospel and follow Jesus and join a church that proclaims a message of forgiveness and reconciliation for all peoples when it doesn't model it? Is it possible that perhaps one of the reasons why the church in the Western world in particular has increasingly lost her influence Is it possible that the reason why she has lost her influence in our culture is because she doesn't look like the message she proclaims? This is what threatened the church in Antioch when Peter turned his Gentile brothers back into others, and it is what threatens the church of America today. And so we, and, 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 and I, I, want to, I don't want to just speak broadly, I want us to think about us as the Olathe Campus of Christ community Do we want to be a church that exists for the sake of Christ and desires to reflect his glory in all that we say and do? If so, then we need a gospel that has no room for other people. I I hope you caught the double entendre of that. That the gospel message, that the gospel message has, has room for all people because it has no room for other people. Because in the gospel, there are no other people. There are no others, there are only potential sisters and brothers. When we have been transformed by the justifying power of God through Christ Jesus, who loved us and rescued us, when we were so profoundly other, how can we continue and perpetuate a mindset and a behavior that continues to create others in our world? When we do that, we show that we do not understand how profoundly other we were when Christ died for us. So where do we go from here? What steps can we take to walk in step with the gospel? Well, let me suggest a few things as we look at the remedy to the threat. The first is this, is that we need a deeper repentance. We need deeper repentance. And what I mean by that is that we need to, be, we need to recognize that that we are complicit both individually and communally, corporately, in the the culture of divide that we see in our communities, in our country, in our world. That we need to be willing to repent individually and collectively. That we need to see that sin is both active and passive. That we are guilty of sins of commission, we do what we shouldn't do, and sins of omission, we don't do what we ought to do. We need to be willing to call out in our lives first We need to call out our own bigotry, our own racism, our own prejudice, our own tendency to create others. And we also have to be willing to call it out in others when we see it. That we need to be a voice for the voiceless. We all have a responsibility to speak out against this kind of divisive categorization of the other when we see it in our schools, in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods, and for sure in our churches. And and let let me say this here. if, if you in this moment, if you recognize that, that I, I'm speaking very pointedly to you, that if you recognize that, that there is some deep-seated racism and prejudice and bigotry within you, hear me very clearly say we love you and we want you here, but we love you enough to hate your bigotry. 
We love you enough to hate that because we know that it is not what is good for you. It does not display the truth of the gospel. And so I would ask you to be open and willing to repent in a deeper way than perhaps you haven't before. We need a deeper repentance. Secondly, we need wider understanding. We need wider understanding. We need to know our nation's history. We need to not shy away from the historic, systemic institution of racism that has residual effects to this day, that we shouldn't be so quick to just pass on and say, hey, we've moved on beyond that. Why do we keep bringing this issue up again? We need to know our nation's history. We need to know our city's history. We need to be willing to learn from people who are different than us, whose experiences and perspectives are different than our own. That we should listen to people who who are from different religions and different ethnicities and different orientations to understand them so that we might have a better understanding of how to be the body of Christ in this community. And I'll say one thing we are doing as a staff, our pastoral staff, uh, we are currently going, we're part of a workshop called Cultural Connections and Conversations. Uh, Our pastors and and a few members of our church of different ethnicities and backgrounds are engaged in this workshop of open, honest conversation. And it's not easy but it's been a really good and helpful conversation for us to be aware of how we can address this issue because it's not just a social and cultural issue, it's a gospel issue. And for many of us, we need to, when it comes to this wider understanding, we, we need to recognize that, that this issue is not just an individual issue, it is, it is deeper than that. It has systemic implications that there is a sense in which there are past and present systems that perpetuate the divide and the segregation and the injustice and inequality we see. And, and one thing I'll suggest, there will be more details to come, but if, you're inter- if this is kind of scratching an itch for you or you're realizing, I need to learn more about this, uh, we're going to have a book study at some point in the future on the, on the book called uh, The Myth of Equality. And I'm sure right now that title just already irks some of you even hearing it. But I would encourage you to, if you're interested, we'll have more information to come, but this would be a great book to enter into the conversation. And I've read this book, and it's phenomenal. I don't agree with everything in it, but we don't have to agree with everything to read a book. If that's true, we would never read any books, not even Dr. Seuss. Anyway, we need a wider understanding. Thirdly, we need longer tables. We need longer tables. What I mean by that is that we need, we need to be in relationships with people who are different than us. We need to understand and experience the world through their perspective. And we won't understand and experience the perspectives of other people if we fail to build relationships through mutual hospitality. We need mutual hospitality. Because one of the things I've learned from our workshop lately is that when we remain in homogenous communities, our, our prejudices go unchallenged and sometimes unseen. We need to be in places. We need to have people who are different than us in our homes. We need to share meals. We need to, like Peter, living into the the freedom afforded to him in the gospel, who lived like a Gentile. And not just, we don't just need a hospitality that says, all of our neighbors are welcome. We need a hospitality that says, let's go and meet our neighbors. It's not enough to say, hey, we're here, but we need to be willing to go and to display to the watching world the plausibility of the gospel, which Trillia Newbell, uh, in her chapter on the book, The Gospel and Reconciliation, she says this. She says, Knowing others who are not like you is one way to display to the world that we are unified in Christ through the gospel. It serves as a powerful picture of the transforming work of the gospel. And we need to display this. And, and, and frankly, I mean, this is, if, you, if you've been a part of the church, you know, this is what we, what we hope for in our Reach KC initiative, 
Reach KC is not just about raising funds for this building and for land for our Shawnee Mission campus. Reach KC is about reaching our neighbors. We're not done with Reach KC just because we're in this building. The heart of Reach KC is that we might be a church for all peoples in all parts of our city. But we won't get to that unless we adopt this last thing, is that we also need a bigger gospel. We need a gospel that deconstructs our prejudices, that crucifies our division and realigns our allegiance to Jesus Christ. We need a gospel that forms and shapes the way in which we see ourselves and each other. We need a gospel that condemns our hostility and cultivates hospitality. We need a gospel that confronts our bigotry and creates a family. We need a gospel that has no room for other people because in Christ there are no others but only potential sisters and brothers. Is your gospel big enough? And are you and I, are we walking in step with the gospel? I think it's appropriate for us to just take a moment to pray, to prayerfully reflect and confess in light of what we've just heard. And, and I realize there's probably a mix of emotions and feelings and perspectives here, but, and I by no means want to fabricate a conviction or guilt in us, but I do want to provide the space for us to respond in prayer. And so I'm going to pray this prayer of confession and reflection over us, and I invite you to pray with me. So let's pray. Father in heaven, we come to you as the one in whom every family on earth derives its name. We come to you, the creator of this world and the author of all that is good, true, and beautiful. We acknowledge that you have made humanity in all of our glorious diversity to reflect and image your glorious divinity. Yet we find within all of us the ability and desire to divide and despise fellow image bearers who we deem as being other. Father, forgive us for such naive, ignorant, and ungodly mindsets that tear down what you have built. We confess that we have, in various ways, lived out of step with the gospel, the gospel that shows no partiality and that reconciles all peoples together as they are reconciled to you on the basis of Christ's shed blood on our behalf. Lord, help us to see where this gospel has not taken root in our hearts, where we either desire to keep people divided or where we are simply indifferent to the division we see. We confess that we are guilty of not only lacking understanding and compassion towards those who are different from us, but that we have often justified our indifference and our prejudice in ungodly ways. We confess our pride that places us over and above other people, which perpetuates a mindset and culture that continues to be out of step with the gospel. O gracious Redeemer, we ask that the light of the gospel would shine into the darkness of our ignorance. We ask that the love of the gospel would warm our hearts towards our neighbors of all backgrounds. We ask that the peace of the gospel would captivate our imaginations and mobilize us in our vocations to work towards the shalom that you are building everything towards. We ask that the reconciling power of the gospel would crucify our hostility and resurrect in its place a godly hospitality that boldly declares in Christ the many are made one. Lord Jesus, do this work in us and through us that the power of the gospel might be put on display for the world to see and for the world to know. We pray in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen. Is the power of the gospel that transforms others into sisters and brothers. And it is this gospel message that forms us and shapes us individually and as a people.
It is why we gather on Sundays to hear this message. And it is why we leave this place to enter into Monday living out the truth of this message, walking in step with it. And so as we prepare to be a church sent out into the various vocations and and spheres of influence that God has placed us in, places where there are different narratives that tell us how we are to live and interact with others, may we all go walking in step with this gospel that has the power truly to turn others into sisters and brothers. And so as we leave, may you hear these words of the Apostle Paul as our good word, our benediction for the road. So hear these words as we leave. Brothers and sisters, in Christ Jesus, you are all sons and daughters of God through faith. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Go in the peace of the Lord, walking in step with the gospel. Have a great week.